This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ okay. in His power and love. Well, I want to just get up and preach, but now I have to do prep. In case anybody asks me, hey, what's that name of God? I don't know. What are you, why are you springing it on me like that? Uh, incredibly thankful is how I feel for the opportunity to share, share with my church family. Rachel and I and the kids have been attending for almost a year, Rachel, and we joined the church in March. So it's been a very warm welcome. Um, I mean, just from people we see in passing to people we've been able to spend more time with, it's been an incredible privilege. And I'm thankful to our pastors for giving me the opportunity to share with you this morning from God's Word. This is my favorite thing in the world, the Bible. Um, because as the song said, it teaches us that God is our rescuer. And so we're going to look into God's word in Psalm 107, if you'll turn there and talk about that today. The title of today's message, Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So. Psalm 107. If you can put yourself in the mindset of being one among the crowd in first century Israel, following this young 31-year-old man around the Sea of Galilee and his 12 disciples, just for a moment, Jesus had been performing incredible feats, miracles in the midst of people who had only ever heard of these kinds of things in their own tradition. In the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, the, the, the covenant, they had heard of Moses and of Elijah but they had never seen these things, and here before them is a man who is performing things and doing things that human beings do not do. He's saying things that human beings do not say. You could be sure that every time Jesus opened his mouth, you'd be like, that's never been said in history. That's never been said. And he had a way of saying something old and new at the same time. The most quotable person. So Jesus would say something that alluded to something in the Old Testament that they had heard in synagogue weekend after weekend growing up, but he, he put something on it that just represented the imminence of that truth that he pulled from the Old Testament scriptures. And it just awakened people. I mean, you've, you've read the gospels and you've seen, or at least you've heard, where people say, you say things that no one else said. When Jesus, after, in John chapter 6, just came to my mind, but in John chapter 6, when, when Jesus is talking about how he is the bread of life, and remember that the crowd who was listening was not really excited about the idea of eating his flesh, right? They took him very literally, and so they kind of all went their own way, and then Jesus turns to his, his disciples and says, are you going to? Are you going to leave with them? And they say to him, what? Where we go? You have the words of eternal life. You've said something that has clued us into the fact that you're different. So imagine you're with Jesus, you're in the crowd at least, you're following him around the Sea of Galilee, the evening is drawing near, and I'm assuming if you're Jesus and the disciples, you want to get some space away from the crowd, and you want to encourage them to go back home. So you get into the boat, and you're going to cross the other side of the lake, because this will, this will sort of encourage some space between you and them. And understandably, when Jesus gets into the boat, he goes down into the lower part and he starts to fall asleep. 
He's exhausted from preaching, from performing miracles, from meeting the needs individually and corporately of a large group of people. While Jesus is in the boat and it starts getting dark on the sea, the disciples, who you know many were fishermen and knew that body of water very well, start to experience something that they probably hoped would never happen while they were out in the middle of the water. The waves start to pick up. The wind is cutting through. And if you read the account in Matthew 8, in Luke 4, in, in uh, not Luke 4, but Mark 4, and in Luke 8, it talks about how violent it became on the ship. Water is pouring into the deck. It's knocking against the boat. You can imagine they're clinging onto something so as not to get thrown off. Because even if you're a good swimmer, you don't want to be out in that. And so they go down into the boat where Jesus is doing what? Sleeping. And they shake him awake and saying, what are you doing? Do you not care that we're going to die? In another version, it says, Lord, save us. And so Jesus gets up, and I've always wondered, did he hurry to the top deck? Or did he just walk slowly? You know, you know the ship was swaying. But anyway, Jesus gets to the top deck, and again, he's going to do something, but only in the audience of these few men that no one has ever done. It's something they've heard about in the Old Testament. There's more than one Old Testament passage that talks about God the Lord, Jehovah, calming the sea and rebuking it. Psalm 104, the passage today, Psalm 107, and telling it to stop and it listens to him. But no human has ever done such a thing. And Jesus goes up to the top of the deck and all three versions say the same thing. They say, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and it ceased. So you're one of the disciples, and you're standing in that gently rocking boat, ankle deep in water that's been pouring in, dripping from the mass, dripping from your fingers, and you've just witnessed something no one has ever witnessed, nor will witness again, and you turn to one another, and you may remember at the end of this passage in Matthew, the disciples say something to one another. They turn, and it seems like it's not in the hearing of Jesus, but they say to one another, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the passage ends. No answer is given. There's no, like, theological explanation of who Jesus is. It just ends, and immediately the disciples are on to the next thing. Jesus is uh, healing or exercising, you could say, a demon-possessed man. And it's like the disciples didn't have time to really sit on that thought for a while. They had to move on to what was next. But the question hangs there in the text because it's literary brilliance to taunt us as the reader. That when we read this story and we hear the words, the question, who is this that tells inanimate forces of nature what to do? And they listen to him. I wonder how many times the disciples told the water, come on, send me the fish, send them my way. And the sea never listened to them. But Jesus tells it to cease and it stops. This morning in Psalm 107, we're going to be talking about a God who loves his people and who, because of his love for his people, rescues them from danger. And maybe what Jesus was trying to communicate that day out on the lake, on, sea, on the Sea of Galilee. God loves his people. It causes him to rescue them. They, in turn, praise him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Look down at verses 1 through 3. We'll pray here in a moment. Psalm 107, 1 through 3. 
excellent song list that um, uh, Luke and company and our worship team put together. It was excellent. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And then the text moves on to talk about four groups of people who have been rescued by God. Sort of like hypothetical groups or groups that sort of represent that God can rescue people from any place and in any situation. If you just look briefly at verse 4, it says that one group of people was wandering in desert wastes and found no city to dwell in. And they cried out to God in their desperation. He rescued them and then that passage ends... Let the redeemed, or not the let the redeemed, but passage ends in verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. You skip ahead to verse 10, you see the next group of people in trouble. They sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. I think of the testimony that Brother Dave just got up and, and shared, that, that Pastor Thurman had shared. Incredible story. Some were in affliction. Passage goes on to say, they cried out to the Lord, he delivered them, and what's the conclusion? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. In the next passage, you have people in verse 17 and following, uh, Luke read it up here, who were fools, and they fell into affliction. They were suffering from disease, from want physically. They cried out to God in their need. He delivered them, and it concludes... Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And in the final passage, you see people on the high seas. Desperate, sure to die. They cry out to the Lord in the storm. He delivers them and it concludes, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. The final section of the passage, verses 33 through 42, are a description of God as a God who reverses the fortunes of his people. He takes the proud, the arrogant, and the oppressor, and he brings them low. He takes the humble, the brokenhearted, and the contrite, and he raises them up. And the passage concludes in verse 43, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So this morning, the psalm teaches that God's steadfast love leads to his rescue of us, which leads to our praise of him for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we look into your word this morning, God, we ask for humble hearts, ready to receive the message of the psalm, ready to receive by the power of your Holy Spirit what you want us to hear and walk out of this room thinking today that will affect the way we speak to our family members. It'll affect the way we speak to someone at the grocery store or at work. It'll, God, change the framework of our speech such that when we talk about good things that have happened in our lives, we speak openly what is true, that God is the one who affected those, that caused those things to happen and that he is deserving of all the glory. From the smallest victories in our life brought by the Lord to the greatest victory of him rescuing us from our sins. He is our rescuer. So God, give us strength to both hear your word and to apply it today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first part of the passage deals with the steadfast love of God. Now, as you have experienced, because we've all experienced it, 
Human love is imperfect. People in our lives let us down all the time. My wife and my children hurt my feelings on a regular basis. They're aggressive, they aggress me, they hurt me, and then I have to blog about it just to stay sane. I don't blog about it, but they, they do. Uh, there's this thing my wife has done that's horrible, she's done it for years. We'll go out somewhere together, probably Target, and then when we're walking back to the car, I, we're walking at a normal pace, but then when we get close to the car, there's like a little skip in her step. She like kind of moves faster, gets into the car, and you see the lock go down on the side of the door. And I'm standing out there, doesn't matter what temperature it is, doesn't matter if there's like gale force winds throwing my body against the car. It could be very dangerous, but she's locked the door, and I'm standing outside like a bug, you know, trying to get in and tapping on it, and she holds, she does this thing, she holds her phone up like this and goes, dance boy, like that, out, I, I'm not kidding you. It's as hurtful as it sounds, and she will not let me in the car until I dance in public in a parking lot. And it was great after I preached this sermon earlier at 8.30 and Luke said, I must have looked like a leprechaun out there dancing a jig. Thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate that. Like I didn't grow up with ridicule about my spots and my red hair and stuff. Okay. But anyway, Rachel won't let me in the car. So lately there's this new development of abuse where once I get into the car, I hear a voice from the back seat of a little person that I have, you know, partially brought into the world. Rachel did all the work. But this child that is mine, and, and they've started roasting me, whether it's about my hairline or uh, my age. I'm not that old, but to them I'm ancient. Or, or it's about my pandemic 15. And they'll say something like, this happened Friday night. I was just minding my own business in the passenger seat, and I heard a voice in the back say, hey, Dad, yeah, I would roast you, but Mom said I'm not allowed to burn trash. <laughs> So I spanked them. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I wanted to, but I didn't. Human love is imperfect. Um, that's a kind of a goofy example, but we all have examples in our life of people who we lives of people who we've trusted in, family members, parents, uh, friends, government officials, pastors. There's people in our lives we've trusted in who. They're not capable of the perfect love that God is capable of. So what do they do? Inevitably, people let us down. People hurt our feelings. They put us in a position of vulnerability, and we recognize that whatever it is we're craving, like to fill our souls, it's definitely not something that can come from human beings. And if you've lived enough time and had enough heartbreak, you find that to be true. The only thing that can satisfy that is the perfect love of God. Verses one through three, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The Hebrew term for this love that's discussed here is covenantal in nature. This love is not just writing, you know, I love you and on a note and passing it to the cute girl in class. This is something completely different. This is love that is marked both by its longevity and by its loyalty. God's love is unfailing. And when I say covenantal in nature, when God makes a covenant with people, as he did in the Old Testament, and as Christ brought about through the new covenant of his blood, God is making an arrangement with human beings of love and of loyalty that he cannot break because he will not break it. Who ends up breaking agreements? We do in our hearts with the Lord. We're the ones who are fickle. We're the ones whose love is untethered. 
We're the ones who are constantly groping, grasping for things in life that we just want to make us happy, but can't ultimately satisfy us and make us happy. God's love lasts forever. And here's the consequence. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Hey, if God's steadfast love endures forever, let those who've been redeemed by God actually talk about it. If he's rescued you, say something. Say, he's rescued me. Make it part of our daily speech. That's, the, that's sort of the sense that's being communicated. And in verse 3, he has gathered his people from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. God has rescued people from all four corners of the earth and brought them into his saving presence. Now, if that language sounds familiar, that north, south, east, west, there's several places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but it also appears in the New Testament, where God is said to bring his people from all four corners of the earth. And a lot of times it refers to the specific act of returning the Jewish people to Jerusalem, to the land of Judah, after they had been scattered throughout the earth by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 586 BC. So this language in this, in this text, the immediate context is God has gathered his people back to the land. Like in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read about how God is gathering his people back into the land after they had been scattered abroad. And that's, that's one layer of the text. The other layer of the text is what's directly applicable to believers of all time, not just Jewish believers of that time period. And it says that God just in general, it's just part of his nature, it's part of the divine DNA that God loves and because of his love rescues his people. And that the appropriate response of his people is to bring praise and glory to his name. And that that closes the circuit. As Romans 11.36 says, Paul says this. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To his name be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of his love. For the sake of his glory, he does all of these incredible things. And I already mentioned this earlier, but what follows verses 1 through 3 are these four groups of people. So let's take a moment to talk about the rescue of God. Let's read verses 4 through 9 together. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble... And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's an incredible verse at the end. He satisfies your longing soul, fills your hungry soul with good things. This passage in particular reminds me of a specific time in my life, in my wife's and kids' lives, when we were like people wandering without a place to dwell. Uh, when, I, when we were 24 years old, Rachel and I were at Liberty University, and after we graduated, I got an opportunity to go to grad school in Cincinnati, and so I said, hey, we're moving to Cincinnati, which was just such a crazy thing because 
uh, Rachel had always had kind of a small town life uh, in Smithfield here. I had moved around quite a bit as a kid. I was a preacher's kid and we were in different houses, but the concept of moving our family 600 miles away was kind of scary and what made it even more ridiculous and makes me feel stupid looking back on it, but I can see God's providence is that we weren't going for jobs. <laughs> we're going for school. So let's go to, to school where there's no guarantee of income, where we know absolutely no one. We have no network. We're young and dumb and we have a two-year-old daughter. Let's do it, you know? Oh, and she's pre Rachel's pregnant, and we find out as we're going that she's having twins. So, terrible decision in that moment, right? As I look back, I think I would never advise somebody to do that, but then I can also see the providence of God through all of it. So, we go out there to the Cincinnati area, and we find an apartment in northern Kentucky, and things start to get very, very hard. And this grand experiment starts to kind of fall apart. We are in kind of a difficult situation in that apartment complex where our apartment neighbors are, are not kind of living a way that would make life easy on us, you know. I had a guy upstairs, Rachel and I, you remember this guy? He was like one of those big weightlifter guys, like a really big guy, and he would do like wind sprints at 3 a.m., just you know, back and forth across the, the building. Um, and you think, well, that's okay, sleep another time. But I couldn't. <laughs> the only time I had to sleep was right then because I was going to have to get up at 4 a.m. to take care of our kids. Things were hard enough before December 1st, 2010, but after the twins were born, things got exceptionally difficult. They were preemies and they required they were in the NICU for two weeks, and they required a lot of attention because of how colicky they were. They couldn't take food. And so the pattern was that I would get up at 4 a.m., and I would feed and change and rock one of them from 4 to 5, and then I would switch to a new baby um, because it took that long to get the food down. So from 5 to 6 a.m., I would repeat the process with my other son. And then from 6 to 7 a.m., I would cram and study as hard as I possibly could, get in the car, rush to Cincinnati, get in class, try to survive something that was way over my head. I just I couldn't have been prepared for how difficult that particular setting in grad school would be. And then when I got out of classes, I would log into the library, work until late, come home, cram and study and repeat, spend a few minutes with Rachel, go to sleep. And that was Monday through Friday. On Saturday, I would get up, spend 10 hours at Amazon on the factory floor. On Sunday, spend 10 hours at Amazon on the factory floor and then just keep repeating. You can imagine how week after week, month after month started to completely deteriorate our souls, mine and Rachel. I mean, I'm not able to be the husband that I need to be. I'm probably not able to be the dad that I need to be for Kelsey at that time. And I'm basically just clock, clocking into each little thing in my life just to survive. And I felt like I was drowning. Uh, add to that the fact that we'd always had a church family and I basically volunteered us for a situation where we weren't going to have one because I was going to work every Sunday just to get enough money to pay rent to survive. So you can imagine the fights that were happening. You can imagine the difficulty, the trying to, the fighting with God. I specifically remember walking around that apartment complex and just shouting at God, just saying, I don't understand. All the signs were there. You let us out here. You wanted us to do this. It seems obvious you wanted us to do this. Tell me it wasn't just my ego leading me out here. Tell me it wasn't that. I don't understand why we don't have enough right now. This doesn't make any sense. I would call professors I had at Liberty or, or call somebody and just say, speak some sense into me because I am extremely desperate. And things just got worse and worse, like financially and, and things like to where we thought, that's it. 
This was a failed experiment. We're just gonna pull the, the cord and head on back to Virginia, and we're gonna have to just kind of settle there because this just didn't work out. We tried, and we failed, and it was about that time. Before, seriously, before I was about to just call the moving truck and, and get one in, that God worked through a series of little circumstances, little providential acts, so that it came to my ear that a certain church needed a youth pastor nearby. And so I thought, I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I had ministered, I'd been a pastor in different contexts in Virginia, and I just don't know if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I followed up and I called them, and one thing led to another, led to another, and they started speaking favorably of me, like they wanted to hire me to this position. And I thought, I don't know what's happening, but if this doesn't happen, it's over for us. I'm, I'm still committed to leaving because I can't go on like this, and I know Rachel can't go on like this. And finally, they asked us to come and visit church one Sunday in this little river town, seven roads, a little school, a little bank, a church, and then just the river, the road just kind of goes on. This tiny little Mayberry-like community, they called us to come and visit church so people could kind of put their eyes on us and sort of see what we're all about. Well, I accepted the invitation, but the problem was I had already accrued five points, which are not a good thing at Amazon. You get a point for not showing up to work or for leaving work for any reason. And I had missed five times rushing Rachel to the hospital on false uh, labor, right? Thinking that she was gonna give birth to the twins. And so this final time, this final time, this sixth point that would mean automatic firing, there's no explanation, no questions asked, would be visiting this church. So Rachel and I just decided we're just going to go. We're just going to go to the church, and if it works out, that's what we needed. If it doesn't, we're immediately out of income, right? And we're, things are like exceptionally worse than they were before. So we go to this church, and it was the most amazing experience in the world. They had a parsonage set up ready for us to live in. They had people who came and took my twins out of my arms, ladies in the church, and just walked around with them. I just feel that weight go away. I mean, even now when I carry them like that in the supermarket, they're so heavy. But I, I experienced the rescue, the redemption, and the grace of God and Rachel did, and my daughter, though she didn't know what was going on, she did, and so the twins did, in an incredible way. And for the next nine and a half years, I was the youth pastor, then the pastor of that church in Bellevue. And this Sunday, today, one year ago, was my farewell message to that church as I was leaving from being their pastor to move back down here to teach at Regent and live near uh, my family and Rachel's family. And so this, this day, today is kind of an emotional day for us because that was a very, very, very difficult thing for us to do one year ago. Those people raised us through our 20s into our early 30s and loved us like no one had ever taken care of us who wasn't family. And so we were incredibly grateful. God rescued us when we had no place to go because God rescues. It's in the nature of who he is. It's in the fabric of his character. Look at verses 10 and following. The next group says that some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them 
from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. What an amazing testimony of who God is. And then third group of people, just briefly, there are those who were suffering affliction because of their sinful ways. They had no, or they, they loathed food. They were sick. What did they do? They cried out to the Lord. The Lord delivered them. And the passage concludes in verse 22, uh, verse 21 and 22. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer thanksgiving, sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. So let's just recap. So far in the song, we have learned that God's steadfast love has led to his rescue of people who are wandering in desert wastes, of people who are in bondage and in captivity behind bars of iron that God had to break, and people who are in such physical affliction that the, the thought of eating food was repulsive to them. God has rescued people from each of these different circumstances. And if this isn't beginning to sound like somebody that you and I know and love in our hearts, I don't know what other language Jesus could have used to describe himself. This language in Psalm 107 is reminiscent of language used of God throughout the Old Testament, that this is the sort of thing God does. But Jesus in echoing this language as he's walking around in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about how he delivers people from bondage, how he heals the sick and gives sight to the blind, how he feeds the hungry and says, I am the bread of life, then literally feeds 5,000 people, like he's the new Moses leading people around and giving his beatitudes in place of commandments. He goes one step further and he delivers his own disciples from death at sea. Look at verses 23 and following. Some went down in the sea to ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Pause for a second. Jesus has done incredible things that echo the very language used in this passage. He feeds 5,000 people and says he's the bread of life. He stands up in the synagogue on the Sabbath and reads from Isaiah and says, I, uh, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as if all of those other clues weren't sufficient, he literally saves his own disciples from death at sea. To proclaim what? That the rescue you know from God in the Old Testament who delivers you from Egypt, who delivers you from Babylon, and delivers you from every circumstance, I am he who has come to deliver you from something greater than Rome, from the power of sin and death itself in your very soul. 
Jesus is proclaiming, I don't know how more loudly he could, that he is the Messiah come from God. He is the manifestation and the fulfillment of all of this language spoken of in the Old Covenant as he ushers in the new covenant of his blood. Jesus, the great rescuer. I mentioned this earlier, but in verses 33, if you look down through 42, we have this description of God as a God who reverses the fortunes of his people. He is someone who turns rivers into a desert, verse 33, springs of water into thirsty ground, a a fruitful land into salty waste. And it goes on to say how he takes the proud, the arrogant, the oppressor, the abuser, and he brings them low. He raises the humble and the contrite and the lowly, and he raises them up and exalts them. And look at verse 41. He raises up the needy out of affliction, makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. 43, the conclusion of this passage, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. God deserves our praise and glory. We are called to weigh out in our hearts in this verse. It says, he who's wise, let him consider. There's this image of weighing something heavy. Think beyond the surface on this is what it's telling us to do. Think beyond that to what it means for a God who loves us, not just to say it so that it's a thought in the air, or that it's just a feeling, but who literally manifests it in real space and time by rescuing us over and over and over and over again in the ordinary things of our lives, and then in the biggest way of all, by raising us to walk in newness of life, by killing death and defeating sin and giving us new life. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God has rescued us again and again throughout our lives. He'll continue to rescue us until we are delivered into his arms in glory. It's part of who he is. The cycle I mentioned earlier is that God loves, God rescues, we praise. All things are from him, through him, for him. By the steadfast love of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he has rescued us in every way. And that calls for the praise of his glory, not just in our hearts, but from our lips to proclaim what God has done in our lives. Let the redeemed of the Lord say that they're redeemed. Talk about what God has done in their lives. God's circuit of glory that I've described is at work in the world today through the redeeming power of the gospel. And it's evident in the myriad of ways uh, that he rescues us. Jesus says in Luke 13, 29, that one day people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south to recline at the kingdom, at the table in the kingdom of God. Meaning that God will continue to rescue until every last one is saved and seated before him in glory. As the book of Revelation talks about, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, you weren't saved in the midst of you being a mediocre moral person. You were saved when you were dead in your sin. You and I were lost while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly. God showed his love for us, that he saved us. He rescued us through the cross. Folks, 
you and I have a challenge on our hearts from God's word in Psalm 107 that the framework of our thinking and our speech be we were redeemed. God is the one who redeemed us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you, God, that we have something to turn to when we're being negative and arrogant. God, when we are just looking at ordinary circumstances in life and cause and effect and giving you no glory and no praise for how you rescue us from things small and big, God, we have a passage and a thought to turn to here from your word that convicts us of our mediocrity, of our nonchalance, of our not really caring or paying much attention to what you're doing in our lives and in the world. God, if we are truly redeemed by you, give us the power of your Holy Spirit to say something about it. Help us, God, to obey you and speak to those we love in our own hearts, to our children, our spouses, whoever. God, give us that power and help us to be obedient to this ancient command fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.